Well, good morning. We are beginning a, a new journey for the next several weeks. Uh, we have just finished uh, weeks, in fact, several months studying the book of Hebrews. We had looked at Hebrews chapters one through the middle of chapter 10 and covered the first two main section of Hebrews. We will eventually get back to Hebrews, but in the meantime, I believe the Lord is leading me and, and Kevin will be preaching at least one of these messages over the next seven weeks to look at seven essentials of revival from the book of Acts. So this will be a little bit of a different study uh, instead of just going section by section through a book the way that we have through Hebrews recently. We're gonna look at uh, a little bit broader perspective. We're going to be spending most of our time in Acts chapters 1 through 6, uh, some into chapter 7. But the purpose of this is to examine how God moved in, in the first half of the book of Acts to launch his church and to move uh, his kingdom forward at such a rapid rate and look at some, some things that are key to that. And so today we're going to begin with one of the themes that appears through the book of Acts. In fact, I would challenge you, you could uh, begin to look, especially in the first 13 chapters of Acts at some point, open your Bible and begin to walk through there and look at the number of times that it says that the people of God were gathered together in prayer. And as they prayed, look and see what impact that made on the church or what immediately followed that time of intense prayer. So we're gonna be looking today at kingdom-focused prayer. There has been no recorded great movement of God in, in the church age that was not preceded by a time of people humbling themselves before God and praying. Now that shouldn't surprise us because our memory verse that I've been bringing before you for months now, 2 Chronicles seven fourteen, tells us that when God first uh, when, when Solomon built the temple and God first poured out his spirit upon the temple, he told Solomon that if my people ever turn their back on me, I'm gonna send pestilence and I'm gonna send uh, all kinds of devastation to their land, but if my people will humble themselves and pray, seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, they'll come back to me, then I will bless them again. And that does not always mean necessarily that it will be a financial or uh, monetary blessing. What it does mean is that when God pours out his spirit upon people, God will, will bring life back into a place that was once dead. One of the greatest examples of this comes from the great prayer awakening of 1857 and 58. And it's often, uh, historians often credit a man named Jeremiah Lampier as really the beginning place, the impetus for this prayer awakening. And one of the reasons that they choose him is likely because what he did uh, where, where God used him was in New York City. And it, interestingly, we still live in a day and age where people look to New York City and see what's happening there to, uh, as kind of an impetus for what's gonna happen around the world, whether it's in the fashion industry or the financial industry or whatever. Jeremiah Lampier, though, on September the 23rd of 1857, had a burden for his city. He was a businessman, and he realized that, that uh, many of his businessmen had gone far away from the Lord, and they were cold. And he recognized that many of them at that time, they would take a one-hour lunch uh, for rest and recuperation. They'd eat lunch between 12 and, and 1 o'clock. So on that day, he felt like the Lord laid on his heart to begin a prayer meeting for businessmen in, in the financial district of downtown New York. 
And so he uh, set it out. He was going to be for one hour, 12 to one. They would actually, he, he gave us some structure. They'd begin with a song at 11.55, regardless of what else was going on. They would have another hymn, I mean, at 12.55. And that way they would know that, that they, they were going to get out and be able to go back to their business on time. And so for one hour, they would open this, this church. It wasn't in the auditorium. It was in an adjacent room, open that room up for prayer. And he advertised it, put the word out. And the first day uh, when he got there at, at noon to get started praying, he was by himself. But people began to trickle in and he structured it in such a way that they could come for five minutes, 10 minutes, or they could come for the whole hour. And by the end of that first day, there were six people praying. God began to move through that little prayer meeting until literally hundreds and hundreds would gather every Wednesday afternoon from 12 to 1 and pray. As I said, historians credit Jeremiah Lampier with the, the beginning of that great prayer awakening. But what historians have begun to understand as they've, more research has come out is that at the same time that God put that prayer movement on the heart of Jeremiah Lampier, he also had put it on the heart of businessmen and pastors and leaders all across the nation. And so stories begin to come in that Somebody had started it in Boston a few weeks earlier, and somebody had started it in the Midwest in Chicago a few weeks before that. And, and what, what began to happen, as people began to pray, there was this great movement of God, this groundswell of movement, and, and the stories go on and on and on. We don't have time for all of it, but... but Connecticut, Massachusetts begin to break out in revival. The Midwest begin to break out in revival. Cincinnati, Cleveland, Louisville, or Louisville, Indianapolis, Detroit, Chicago, St. Louis. In two months, in the state of Ohio, 200 towns recorded 12,000 new professions of faith in a two-month period. And revival broke out and exploded all across the nation. And it began with people gathering in their churches to pray. A recognition that we, what we can't do, God can. So I wanna look at Acts, and, and we're gonna do, like I said, we're gonna do this a little bit different. So I wanna begin with the characteristic of their prayer. We're gonna look at a few characteristics, and then I wanna take a, a little bit longer section and look at the content of their prayer. And so when you open the book of Acts and you begin to read through the book of Acts, one of the first places in Acts chapter one, you see Jesus meeting with his disciples right before he's gonna ascend to heaven. And after he instructs them and he tells them, you remain here in Jerusalem uh, until I tell you, or until you know it's time to leave. And then Jesus is taken up into heaven. In Acts chapter one, verse 14 you see this short sentence. After Jesus ascended to heaven, they all went back to the, the upper room and, and chapter one, verse 14 says, they were all continually united in prayer along with the women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. There's two key words that I want you to see there. This is really the first instance that we have of them gathering to pray before the Holy Spirit's poured out on the church. Continually united in prayer. Their prayer was offered in unity. They came together as a group of believers who believed in this Jesus who they had just seen crucified 40 days before. 
They'd seen him, his resurrected body, and then they had seen him ascend to glory, and they didn't know what else to do. The Holy Spirit had not been poured out on them, so they had not been empowered by the Spirit. Uh, Jesus simply said, you stay in Jerusalem until I tell you it's time to go. And so they stay in Jerusalem, and all they know to do is to connect with God in prayer. So I think that, that we've come to a time in our nation, and we've come to a time in our church where we look around at what's going on in the culture, and we look around at what's going on in the nation, and we can try to put Band-Aids on it. You can try to, to get politically active and try to get the right people voted into office. You can try to get uh, socially active and, and try to meet needs in, in, in all kinds of, of social programs. But I believe that you don't have to have much of an imagination to recognize that our nation is in such a dire position especially in light of Romans 1, how far along we are down that continuum of, of turning from God. And, and one of these days, I'll, uh, we'll go back and we'll walk through Romans 1 and look at that continuum again, because I really think that you can look at decades, 1950s and 60s, 1970s, 1980s, and you can see a continuum of when people begin to trust in material goods as the nation became wealthy, and they begin to put their faith in the material things and not in God, and then that led our nation to begin to be a, a, a people who would worship the creator or the creature instead of the creator, and so we begin to care about, more about baby seals and baby birds and, and those kind of things than we did about human beings in, in, to the point where, where right now you could, you could go, to, go to prison for years for crushing an eagle's egg, but you abort a baby and, and you're patted on the back and told how brave you are. And that began to, to really take root in the 70s. And then in the 1980s, uh, it began to accelerate with a turning away from God. And, and, and you just see it begin to work itself out. And God says, when you do that, when you turn your back on me, and you walk away from me and you continue to do that, there's gonna come a point where I'm gonna turn you over to your sin. And that's why I say when I look at Romans 1, we are so far down that continuum, one of the evidences, pieces of evidence of that is confusion of gender is gonna become rapid. Your, your men are gonna quit pursuing women, they're gonna start pursuing other men and your women are gonna do the same thing. And, and, and that's, that, that is the wrath of God poured out on a nation. That's a, the wrath of God poured out on a people. And over the last 30 years, how far have we gone down that continuum? And so we're at a place now where it almost seems hopeless and we don't know what to do. I would suggest that that's not a whole lot different than where these disciples were. There's, there's one thing that they knew at this point, that Jesus rose from the grave, but he was no longer with them. He descended to heaven. He told us to stay in Jerusalem. Now what are we gonna do? You know what we're gonna do? We're gonna stay in Jerusalem and we're gonna pray. We're gonna connect to him. We're gonna do the, he's not here, we can't see him, we can't talk to him, so we're gonna connect to him in united prayer. And so that's all that his people knew to do was pray. I believe, church, that that's where we are in our nation. If we don't humbly pray and seek God, we will never get to see him move. Second, look at Acts chapter uh, two, verse 42. Here, after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, 
God had moved in the church. He had poured out his spirit upon the church. He'd seen, he'd seen thousands of people saved. In verse four, I'll read verse 41 and 42. So those who accepted this message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 people were added to them, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. So now you have 3,000 new believers, and what do they do? They devote themselves to prayer. They devote themselves to, to, to learning, to fellowshipping, to the breaking of bread, and they devote themselves to prayer. So their prayer was united, and their prayer was devoted. They prayed together, and they prayed with devotion. That word really struck my heart because I wonder if we as a church, us as individual members of the church, whoever you are, wherever, whatever seat you're sitting in, me as the pastor, would we describe our prayer life as devoted to prayer? Are our lives devoted to connecting to the Lord in prayer? See, one of the characteristics that you see here is they got together and they prayed corporately, united, but also they were devoted to prayer. That's how we communicate with the holy God. Third, and I love this, because what then happens is the church is about to go about business. You know, because now you've got 3,000 believers. You've got growth groups scattered all over the city of Jerusalem, right? You've got, you got leadership trying to figure out, now what are we going to do with all these people? They've got all kinds of things going on. And so the very next sentence that you get when you begin Acts chapter 3 is Peter and John were going somewhere. And what happened, this gets lost in the story, because Peter and John, they're going up to the temple, and when they go up to the temple, there's a, a beggar there who's begging for money, and Peter and John say, hey, silver and gold we don't have, but I'll give you what I do have. And they prayed for him, and the guy who had been crippled stands up. It amazes everybody around the temple, and God begins to move in a mighty way. This is what gets lost. Where were Peter and John going, and Why? Acts chapter three, verse one says, now Peter and John were going up to the temple for the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. Peter and John were going to the temple to pray. You know why? Because it was time to pray. They had a committed, devoted hour that they were gonna go pray. Now that does not preclude the fact that Peter and John were also praying at other times. They were probably praying at people's houses while they were doing Bible studies and trainings. They were probably praying on their own as Jesus had taught them. Both of them as disciples of Jesus knew that Jesus got up early in the morning, went out, got off by himself and prayed. This doesn't mean that they weren't doing that. My, my guess would be they were having their own personal devoted, uh, devotional time where they were praying, but scripture tells us here that they were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer to pray. One of the probably most dangerous things that we have lost in the church is a sense of devotion to a time of prayer. Jim Cimbala, when he first started ministering in New York in what eventually became the Brooklyn Tabernacle Church, 
the, the story, if you want to read his kind of autobiography of what God did and moving in that church, is found in his book called Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire. One of the things that stands out to me is early, one, early in his ministry there when there were just a handful of people that were meeting, uh, probably no more than 20 uh, he had a, a, a visitor had come and visited the church that morning, and, and Simbla was not a trained pastor. He hadn't been to seminary. He was a basketball coach when his father-in-law asked him to come take on this little church. And, and this guy shows up, and he asked the man if he would stand up and speak from the pulpit. And, and the man stands up, and of course, it's a very small group of people. And he said, he, he told, told the congregation, he said, the key to God moving in this church is going to be prayer. He said, you'll know how popular your church is by who shows up on Sunday morning. You'll know how popular your pastor is by who comes back on Sunday evening to hear him. You'll know how popular Jesus is among your people by who shows up at prayer meeting. They set aside a time to pray. And Peter and John were headed there. I believe... And if God is going to bring revival and his spirit is going to move in our nation again, we're going to see his people corporately devoted, united in seeking him with all their heart. They're going to set aside a time, they're going to pray at that time, and they're going to pray every chance they get. Because folks, our, our nation is in a position, our culture is in a position that unless people turn back to God with a hungry heart, we won't see a change. You can gather crowds. Churches can still gather crowds if you tickle ears and do what, give people what they want. God's not interested in gatherings of crowds. God's interested in Disciples who are hungry to follow after him. I want to spend the rest of the time looking at what is really the first full prayer that we have from the early church. And let me give you the context of it. And, and I've just simply entitled this point, The Content of Kingdom-Focused Prayer. What does it mean when we gather to pray? And there's several places we could have looked here. We could have looked at the Lord's model prayer that Jesus gives us. But I wanted, because we're in the book of Acts, I wanted to look at this first prayer that's recorded in the book of Acts. And what was going on here? Peter and John, what we were talking about, they were going up to the temple to pray. And they, were, they, they, they met with this guy. They, uh, God healed this guy through him. And uh, their crowds gathered, and so they started preaching the name of Jesus. Well, that got all of the leaders of Jerusalem stirred up. They got mad at them, so they arrested them. And they brought them before uh, the leadership. And the leadership, you know, talks to them a little bit and throws them in jail and lets them back out of jail and talks to them again. And essentially, they tell them, look, you've got to quit preaching the name of Jesus. If you don't, if, if you'll just quit preaching the name of Jesus, we won't kill you. Peter's response was, all we're doing is bearing witness to what we saw. We, we, we walked with this guy, we saw him die, and we saw him resurrected three days later. What else are we gonna do? And then he says, you think it's more important for us to please God or to please you? So eventually they don't know what to do with him, so they let him go. With the threat on their life, that we're gonna let you go, but if you keep preaching in Jesus' name, we're gonna seek you out and we're gonna kill you. So they come back to the church 
That's Acts chapter three and the first half of Acts chapter four. They come back to the church in Acts chapter four, verse 23. And we see the church gathered. The church was praying for their release. And so when they come back to the church in verse 23, scripture says, after they were released, they went to their own people and reported everything that the chief priest and elder said to them. And remember what I just told you the chief priest and elder said. They came back and they reported, well, they let us go, but they told us quit talking in Jesus' name, and if we don't, they're going to kill us. Now, we know that they made, they followed through on that threat. Saul, who eventually became Paul, was, was one of the primary culprits of those who was going out killing people, stoning people, having them drug out of their homes and in prison because they were preaching the name of Jesus. So this was not an idle threat. And the church knew that it was not an idle threat. The church knew that their lives were going to be endangered. They had seen what had happened to Jesus, and they knew that their lives were going to be endangered if they, if they continued to preach in Jesus' name. And so they come before the Lord, and they pray. Now, let me preface this by saying, if I'm in that church prayer meeting, the way I've seen most Baptist prayer meetings go, one of the first things that's going to come to mind is, hey, They've told us that they're going to come kill us. We need to pray that God protect us and keep us safe and that God doesn't let them kill us. Or we need to pray that God get them first and that God take them out so that they can't hurt us, right? We're going to pray for our safety. We're going to pray that God deal with the enemy. Or we're going to pray that God somehow protect us from the enemy's wrath. And we're going to pray for our safety. That's where our heart is going to be rooted. It's going to be rooted in our own protection, perseverance, safety. Or maybe we're going to pray, Lord, show us how we can keep telling people about Jesus without hurting anybody's feelings so we don't get killed. Okay? Okay. That's, that tends to be the kind of things that, that we would pray. That's the content of, of our prayer. And I want you to notice what the church actually did in that time. When they heard this, they raised their voices together to God and said, Master, you are the one who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You said through the Holy Spirit, by the mouth of our father David, your servant, why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot futile things? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers assemble together against the Lord and against his Messiah. For in fact, in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel assembled together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed to do whatever your hand and your will had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, Consider their threats and grant that your servants may speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand for healing and signs and wonders and perform through the name of your holy servant Jesus. When they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word with boldness. I want to I give you real quick Five things, five pieces of content from this kingdom-focused prayer. I want you to notice first and foremost, the first thing they did was worship God. They didn't put their eyes on their problem. They didn't put their eyes on their enemy. They put their eyes on God. They turned their hearts and their eyes toward heaven and they worshiped him. Look at the content of the prayer. In verse 24, 
Master, you are the one who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. There was an immediate recognition that he is God. What an incredible picture of praise and worship that that was on the hearts of, of the church at that point. It wasn't about their threats. It was about who God is. See, if we'll begin by putting our focus on his glory and his majesty and his holiness, our problems become a whole lot smaller, don't they? If he could create the earth and part the seas so that there's dry land and there's seas and there's just enough fresh water to sustain life and the earth is tilted at just the right direction so that it catches just enough sun and the moon is just the right distance away so that the tides work that keep the oceans moving and the beaches clean and God has the earth in orbit just at the right distance around the sun so that it's not too close where it would burn up and it's not too far away where it would be too cold the earth turns at just the right speed on its own axis so that nights aren't too long and and, and days aren't too long so we don't burn up during the day and we don't freeze at night. If God does that, if if God's that big and that powerful and that mighty, he can take care of our problems. This little guy over here, this little judge who thinks that he can destroy the work of God, he's nothing compared to the God who created the heavens and the earth and the seas and everything in them. When we put our eyes on the majesty of God, when we lift up our eyes from our problems and look to him, everything else seems to fade away pretty quickly. So the first order of business when we come to pray and to seek God ought to be to enter into his courts with praise, to come and praise him for his glory, for his majesty, for his power. Because when we recognize how big God is, our problems don't seem so bad. The second thing, after they worship God, I love what they do. They go to scripture. They look back at scripture. And as they go to scripture, essentially what they're doing is they're submitting their hearts to God's wisdom. So they look at God's word and the in light of their present circumstance, they're taking scripture that applies and they're making it a part of their prayer and they begin to pray this. Even your scripture says, David wrote it. You know, a thousand years ago, David wrote this down. He asked the question, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot futile things? The kings of earth take their stand. The rulers assemble together against the Lord and against his Messiah. They said, you know what? This is nothing new to you, God. You knew about it a thousand years ago. David even wrote it down that this was going to happen. He wrote down that the nations were going to rage against you and that they were going to they were going to rise up against the Messiah whom you sent. This is not a surprise, but what they did is they turned to God's word and they submitted their understanding to the word of God. That's what we have to do as God's people is to submit our hearts to God's hearts. You see it in the model prayer when Jesus tells us to pray, not my will, but your will be done. We submit our hearts, our will, to his will and his word. Third, they submitted to his plan. Look at verse 27. For in fact, in this city, Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and people of of Israel, assembled together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed to do whatever your hand and your will had predestined to take place. There's a recognition that God's plan was being worked out, and they were just a part of God's plan. 
And they submitted to God's plan. Instead of pressing against God's plan, they submitted to God's plan. Now, that's not easy to do. The apostle Paul even struggled with it. You remember when, when, when the Holy Spirit met Paul on the road? In fact, Scripture says Jesus met him on the road, appeared to Paul, and, and he says, Paul, why are you kicking against the goads? Paul did not want to submit to the will of God, to God's plan. But eventually, he made the decision that he was better off submitting to God's plan than he was submitting to his own or following his own plan. Isaiah chapter 55, it tells us that God's words, God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts, and his ways are higher than our ways. And so it's incumbent upon us when we recognize that he is God to submit our lives and our hearts to him instead of raging against him. Fourth thing that you see here within the, uh, this prayer is the gospel. They simply, from their vantage point, recounted what Jesus had just done. God, from the very beginning, you planned on sending your son to die. And, and, and you sent your son and it, it, it fleshed itself out. These people who thought that they were destroying your kingdom work were doing just the opposite. You were using them to accomplish your plan such that the Lord's, there in verse 27 and 28 again, he says, to do whatever your hand and will had predestined to take place. They assembled together against Jesus to destroy Jesus. They sought to destroy your plan and yet that was your plan all along. It was God's design that he would send his son to die on a cross so that we could have hope and have everlasting life. You imagine that. Before the very beginning of time, God set a plan in place. Knowing that we were going to rage against him, that we were going to spit in his face metaphorically, that, that we were going to hate the direction that God wanted to move in our lives, that, that we were gonna do whatever we could, knowing all of that, knowing that every single one of us at some point in our life was gonna turn our backs on God. All of us were gonna sin. Knowing that, God planned to send his son to die on a cross at the hands of sinful men so that we could have everlasting life. At the... At at the center of their prayer is a, is a recognition of what God did for us through sending his son, Jesus. I want to pause there for just a moment because this is the, 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 the core. These people, these people who are gathered together in church and praying are part of that 3,000, or they're gathered in a home and praying, are part of 3,000 who had put their faith and trust in Christ. They had come to that recognition that they were sinners. You go back and read Acts chapter two, and we're not reading all of, the, all of the text here, but you go back and you read Acts chapter two, and they recognize that they were sinners. When Peter began to preaching his message, they, and so they cried out, oh, we're sinners, and we're, we're doomed. What do we do? And Jesus said, and Peter said, you simply have to put your trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior and be baptized and follow after him. And so they did. They surrendered their hearts and their lives to Christ as their Savior and, and submitted their, their will to his will and began to follow after the Lord. And when they did that, they were born again. It's been heavy on my heart this week as I pray for God to move, that God move in the hearts of people that lost, people that don't know Jesus, that have never taken that step of putting their faith in him, 
would come to faith in Christ and get it settled once and for all. One of the, the most incredible outpourings of that prayer awakening in 1957 and 58, or 1857 and 58 was literally hundreds of thousands of people came to faith in Christ. One of my favorite stories that came out of that was uh, at one of the businessmen's prayer meetings in New York. This was recorded in the New York Herald. The, the public newspapers began to pick up on these stories because it was so, uh, so pervasive. In fact, the New York Herald at one point even gave a list of how many people showed up at all the different prayer meetings on different days at the various churches. Now listen to this story. At, the, at our very first meeting, someone put in such a request as this. A praying wife requests the prayers this for, of this meeting for her unconverted husband that he might be converted and make a humble disciple of the Lord Jesus. So they, all these hundreds of businessmen are showing up at a prayer meeting and they read some of these requests and they would read one or two requests and then they would pray. They'd read one or two requests and then they'd pray. And when the hour was up, they'd sing a song and they'd go. So one of the prayers that, that is read is a praying wife is asking that somebody pray for her lost husband. The guy stands up in the back. He said, a stout burly man arose and said, I'm that man. I have a praying wife and this request must be for me. Will y'all pray for my salvation? Another guy stands up and says, no, I'm that guy. My wife is a pious praying woman and she has been praying for me. Would you pray that I could be saved? A total of seven men stood up in the same meeting and made the same request because they knew that they were lost and they needed save, to be saved by the blood of Christ. God simply moved through a prayer meeting that, that men and women who did not know Christ as Savior were instantly brought into the family of faith when they put their trust in Christ. One, one was a, a, a young teenage boy, a 19-year-old young man who shows up at a prayer meeting and they read a prayer request that says, a mother requests that her 19-year-old son be saved. He stands up and says, that's me. My mom's praying for me. I need to be saved. God moved in such a mighty way that even in the prayer meetings, hundreds of people were coming to put their faith and trust in Christ. It's a recognition that at the core of all that we do and the core of all of our time in prayer is what Christ did for us on the cross. Had he not gone to the cross, had he not shed his blood for us, nothing else would matter. And then fifth, you see their petition. I want you to notice how long it takes them to get to their petition because far too often our prayers begin with our list of what we want. God, this is what I need. God, this person's sick, heal this person. And they begin with our petitions. The last thing that they pray, the last thing they do is get to their actual prayer request to get to the petition. I think that that's important to notice. First of all, there was a lot of worship. There was a lot of recognition of God's will. There was a lot of recognition of God's plan. There was submission to God's word all before they come to this place where their hearts were ready to truly ask God what they came to ask him. And so when they come to the, the time of petition, I want you to notice the content of the petition. It was not for their safety. It was not for the destruction of their enemies and it was not for any type of protection. They prayed, Lord, consider their threats and give us boldness. Lord, they're coming after us. 
They're not asking to be protected. They're not asking for the enemy to, to be destroyed. They're asking that God would grant them boldness from his Holy Spirit that they might stand in the wake of persecution to continue to proclaim Jesus. Lord, consider their threats and grant that your servants may speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand for healings and signs and wonders that are performed in the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Their one request in this prayer after having their lives threatened, don't miss the, the connection here. Their lives were threatened if they kept preaching Jesus. So their prayer request was, Lord, give us boldness to keep preaching Jesus. You see that? Lord, don't let us shrink back. We know they want to kill us. We know they want to destroy us. We know that, that, that they hate all that we stand for. Give us boldness to do the very thing that they hate the most and just keep preaching Jesus. Keep proclaiming your word. Kingdom-focused prayer is not focused on my protection, my health, my wealth, my desires. Kingdom-focused prayer is focused on his kingdom. It's focused on his power, his word, his will, his good news, and fulfilling what he's called us to do. And in this particular case, their calling was to proclaim the word of God with boldness. Until we as God's people become corporately devoted to prayer, regularly devoted to seeking the Lord with all of our heart and seeking his kingdom purposes and not our kingdom purposes, I don't believe we'll ever see revival in our generation. But if his people will humble themselves and pray, turn our backs on our desires and what we want and look to him and ask God in all sincerity, his promise is that he will send revival. That's where our hearts have to be. I wanna, we're gonna have a time of response here in just a moment. I wanna do two things. I'm gonna call you to pray. I asked a tough question. It was a tough question that, that kind of cut at the core of my heart earlier. Is could my prayer life be described as devoted prayer? And if it's not, let that sink in. Am I devoted to the Lord in my prayer life? When I have opportunity to pray, do I seek him out with all of my heart? Not for my own benefit, but do I seek him out? So church, that's my request for you. Allow the Holy Spirit to examine your heart and ask yourself that question. Could, would you use that adjective to define my prayer life? And then second, I, I know it wasn't as straightforward as it often is, but the truth of the gospel is that if you don't know Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, if you've never come to that place where you put your full faith and trust in him as these people did following the day of Pentecost, the scripture teaches that we will die in our sins and be forever separated from a holy God. God sent his son to die on a cross because we're all sinners. 
because we have all sinned against him. Scripture teaches us that the wages of sin is death. One sin is all it takes, and, and believe me, I've got a whole lot more than one, to separate me from the presence of God. The hope that I have is not rooted in me being good enough to get to heaven. The only hope I have is rooted in the fact that Christ died on a cross at the hands of sinful men. He shed his blood for me and offers me the gift of eternal life. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, my Lord. And so if you have never put your faith and trust in Christ as your Lord, please don't leave here until you talk to me or Kevin, or if you'll come down and talk to us, we've got some counselors that can help you. If you feel more comfortable visiting with a lady, we'll have a lady down here. It's so important, because the bottom line is this. If, if you don't know for certain if you were to die today where you'd end up, you need to get that settled. You know, scripture's clear. Scripture says that if you ha have not put your faith in Christ to follow him as your Lord, and you don't have eternal life, and scripture doesn't equivocate on that. There's only one name under heaven by which you might be saved, and that's Jesus. It's the one whom God sent that these human rulers thought they could destroy. And yet, though they killed him, he rose again three days later, proven once and for all that he was victorious over death and the grave. So would you stand with me as Matthew comes to lead us? You may just need to come to the altar and pray. Folks, if we as a church don't learn to come and pray with all of our hearts devoted to God, we'll never see revival. Father, I pray that your spirit would move in these moments. And if there's anybody in, in the hearing of this message, whether it be today or whether it's on the podcast later on, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would convict us of our sin and draw us to you. If anyone has not put their full faith and trust in you as their Savior, they don't know for sure Lord, I pray that they'd reach out, they would find, find you. Father, I also pray for us as your church. The promise of Second Chronicles was poured out to you, was given to your people. Father, we desperately need you. Our nation is way down that road that Romans 1 describes, and we need you, Lord. Pray that your spirit would convict us of our slothfulness in prayer and that you draw us to you. We pray in Jesus' name.